So religious conflict in Europe is really going to be more of an underlying factor for what I would consider more conflict for power between major families. Uh, One of the biggest struggles we see early on in European history is which families are forming as the dominant families within Europe. And for us, and what you may want to put down in your notes here, maybe underneath the Union of Utrecht, is maybe make a quick uh, couple of notes here on the, the major families. So the biggest family early is the Habsburgs. And the Habsburgs are going to control both Spain and Austria. And that's the one where Charles V is kind of the dominant feature throughout Europe. Well, once Charles V ends his reign, kind of of his own doing, he splits that so that you have Spanish Habsburgs and Austrian Habsburgs. So you split it to where you have two sides of the same family. And that becomes the most dominant feature early. In French history, the group that will eventually rival the Habsburgs are the Bourbons. B-O-U-B-O-N. B-O-U-R-B-O-N. Bourbon, like bourbon. Um, And the Bourbon family, yeah, that didn't help anyone, right, with the spelling, because you can't read my writing. Is that better? I don't know, maybe. So the Bourbon family is going to start with Henry IV. Now, he's the one who had a bit of a red wedding, and his going-to-be mother-in-law somewhat orchestrated it. Catherine de Medici, whose daughter is marrying him, but she is allowing for their wedding to be a bit of a red wedding. Little cutthroat, if you ask me, because they kill something like in the tens of thousands of Huguenots during the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which was his wedding day. Um, So I'll start making your correlations here. Now, for us, Catherine is an interesting personality because she has... Three ineffective sons that she all reigns as queen regent. Q. Regent. Which means in the place of someone else because her sons keep dying. Uh, The one that most people remember is Francis because he was uh, married to Mary Stuart, who's Mary Queen of Scots. Now, the sad thing is they're really young when Francis dies. And the other people that come in to take over after Francis are Catherine's other sons. They're all ineffective. They all die at relatively young ages. And so what's interesting about Catherine is she's actually the descendant of Lorenzo de' Medici, one of the, the, one of the Lorenzos. Um, and he and the family, the Medici family, is incredibly wealthy. So if you know Game of Thrones, this is the Lannisters. Remember, the Lannisters always pay their debts. That is Catherine is Xerxes. So she, uh, Xerxes, yeah. So she, Xerxes, Xerxes. So she is the one who is always, you know how she's always manipulating in Game of Thrones? She's manipulating whatever situation she's in. That is Catherine de' Medici. And also, if you remember from the Game of Thrones, you know how all of her sons keep dying? It's the same thing, right? So, and and the whole red wedding thing that she essentially orchestrated, like this is all very much him just regurgitating European history uh, back into something that he turns into fantasy world with dragons. Um, 
yeah now as far as we are concerned where where this starts is Catherine de medici is trying to weaken the geis family and the bourbon family in hopes that she probably can take over or remain in power she thinks kind of if she plays both sides she'll be able to kind of manipulate her way through this situation so initially she shows support for the Geises, and that's because in St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, she allows them to massacre Huguenots en masse on her daughter's wedding day to the Bourbon, Henry IV. So I think what this is, in at least in a historical context, is us seeing competition between families with an underlying factor of religion and then it playing out with really being a struggle for power. And I think that's going to be the common theme, that is the common theme with most of these religious wars and conflicts, is that they start with a religious pretext and end up really being more of a, a struggle for power. And I think that's the best way to organize your thoughts in regards to religious war and conflict. Now, what happens after St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre is you have a struggle between the Protestant League and the Catholic, or the Protestant Union and the Catholic League. Henry Navarre defeats the Catholic League and eventually will become known as Henry IV, or Henry Navarre, Henry IV, the same person. What it does is it now makes it, because the, the old Valois family is the family that Catherine had married into. She had married Henry II, um, all of their children were essentially ineffective. Now, even Margaret, who marries Henry, eventually they'll be married for like 20-something years. He will divorce Margaret, I think, in 1599. I can't remember why. It possibly was because she didn't have children. I can't remember, though. Um, I personally would have to look it up um, because it's been a while. But what we see from the effects of the war is that it keeps France really divided, and that will be the case going forward. It's not going to change. It will reduce the power of the monarchy. And that will be the same until you get to Louis XIV, where Louis XIV brings the power of the monarchy back in France. And it now will remove a former French family of the Valois that will be replaced by the Bourbons as the most dominant feature in France for the next 250 years. So for a very long time in French history, the Bourbon family will dominate France from this, from this point forward. Until they have a bit of a French Revolution, and they may have possibly cut his head off and his wife, who was a Habsburg, by the way. So this is what gets interesting. By the time you get to the French Revolution, uh, Louis XVI had married a Habsburg with, Cath or with um, uh, Marie Antoinette because Marie Antoinette comes from Austria. And when they get taken captive by their people, that's why Austria invades France. So the French Revolution is not just a revolution from within. It's a fight to keep France from without as well, because people from the outside are trying to invade. Austria is invading. Uh, they have issues with Spain. They have issues with uh, the Holy, what was the Holy Roman Empire, the Prussians. Um, the English eventually will get involved because everyone thinks they're going to be able to like pull a piece of France off of France. Um, it's very fun. So <clears throat> Henry does what 
we call a very politique move. And what that means is that, and what I would write down for this slide is the stuff in yellow. Um, he is known as saying Paris is worth a mass. Now remember, he was the leader of the Protestant Union against the Catholics. And then once he takes control, he flips. He goes to become Catholic. And the reason he does this is because he knows that France is mostly Catholic. And so he wants to do what he thinks is in the best interest of his people, but he also makes it legal to be a Protestant or specifically a Huguenot because that's what he was. So it's important to, to kind of recognize that his move, his very politique move, which is very similar to Elizabeth in England, is him allowing for some religious tolerance but doing what is best for his state, not himself. Louis XIV, who's coming in in a little bit of time, is going to be very different. Louis's moniker will be one king, one law, one faith. Very strong, singular rulership, kind of the opposite of what the politique version of ruling is. And that's where we're going. Um, in the, this unit of absolutism, it's kind of odd that it's, it's starting with these politiques. But what I want you to get is... This will breed a period of religious struggle. So you'll have an even ra bigger ramping up of re religious struggle. Once that religious struggle hits a boiling point with the Thirty Years' War, people will be asking for an absolute ruler to come back because they want what? Safety, right? So this whole history thing is just a bouncing back and forth of freedom and security. These politiques are allowing for freedom. But then war happens. And then they're like, no, 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 let's go with the safety thing again. And so it goes just back the other way. And that's going to be a common theme for us. <clears throat> now, the 30 Years War. And I'm only going to start the 30 Years War with you guys. So I, I don't want to get super far ahead. I'm probably only going to do the first two phases, most likely. As far as early characteristics, you can write this down. Give me one second. Now, the Holy Roman Empire is going to become the battleground here. And what gets really bad is specifically in the German states. At the end of the Thirty Years' War, they lose about a third of their population due to the Thirty Years' War. So it's a pretty devastating event for the German states. Like I've been trying to kind of allude to this whole lecture of the religious conflicts is that they start as a Catholic versus Protestant thing but it doesn't really end that way. It ends as a power struggle. And by the time you get into the end of the Thirty Years' War with the Treaty of Westphalia, it will significantly damage the power of the Habsburgs in the Holy Roman Empire. And that is why the last phase of the war, the French phase, is so important, is because the Bourbons are vying for power against the Habsburgs. So in the Thirty Years' War, there's four phases. There's the Bohemian phase, which is short. There's the Danish phase, which is also relatively short. There's the Swedish phase, where you have a, a Protestant champion, Gustavus Adolphus, coming down from the north. And he's this really inventive military leader. Problem is, he also went into battle with his troops and died in battle with his troops. Um, but he was by many accounts, kind of seen as the Protestant savior from the north. Um, the, they, he was also nicknamed the Lion of the North. But ironically, he dies in battle. 
Uh, the last phase is the French phase, and that's the longest phase, also the most devastating phase of the war. So the first phase is called the Bohemian phase, and it happens in uh, Prague. So Ferdinand II inherits the throne of the Holy Roman Empire, and he is deciding that they are going to go back to Catholic. And so he's trying to overturn the Peace of Augsburg, which allowed these kind of city-states to make their own decision. So the Catholic League shows up in Prague at the Protestant Union and tells them that they get to be Catholic again. And the Protestants do what any good Protestant would do and throw them out the window. That is called defenestration. There's an actual word for throwing someone out a window. So if you ever need a a solid thing to start the 30 years war and you're live tweeting, please defenestrate someone. Um, But what happens is they are at the top of like a three-story building. Legend says that they threw them out the window and they did not die. They landed in a pile of horse manure and made their way back to the leader, Ferdinand, basically saying, we had a bit of a problem, and this starts the Thirty Years' War. Fun. So, when Ferdinand becomes the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick challenges him in Bohemia, and when he does that, Frederick has to borrow an army. This is before you have standing armies in Europe, Standing armies don't really happen on a grand scale until really the late 1800s during a period called militarism. But before that, most of the time you had to either purchase an army or raise an army or, if worst case scenario, scenario, hire a mercenary army. Why is that a bad idea? What are, what's wrong with mercenaries? Why did Machiavelli hate the mercenary army? Because yeah. They won't fight for you. They'll fight for money. They fight for money. And they don't fight for loyalty. So just because you're paying them is the only reason that they're loyal to you. So what happens if you're losing? They leave because they know they're not getting paid. So mercenary armies are very fickle. And Machiavelli hates them. He sees them as the the easiest way to lose is to hire a mercenary army. Um, What you find in, in history generally is that anytime you get to a point where you're using mercenary armies, you know you've lost. Um, The Nazis are kind of a good example of this as well. Like early on, when they're using mostly German soldiers, they're pretty effective. By the time you get to the end of World War II, they're using proxy armies as well, and they're not as effective. Um, Many of the German armies that are still fighting are still very effective to the end of the war. It's just they're running out of them. Um, And it's the same thing in most conflicts or empires that start to grow uh same thing kind of happens with napoleon when he starts to make his way towards russia with his grand army which is like four hundred thousand or so troops that he comes back with ten thousand um because they just get devastated by russia in winter mostly um the russians do what the russians do best to napoleon and that's run away and burn everything um we'll talk about that a couple times in history that's not a one-time thing Uh, The second phase is called the Danish phase. And this is after Ferdinand had already dominated the first phase of the war. And he hires uh, Albrecht von Wallenstein, who has an army. It's a mercenary army. 
and Wallenstein defeats the Protestants relatively quickly. They pass the Edict of Restitution, which basically gets rid of the Edict of, um, or sorry, the, the Peace of Augsburg. Um, well, at the very least, it gets rid of the Calvinists of ha- as having any power. The Lutherans still had some power. But the problem became Wallenstein because no one likes a mercenary army. Sometimes even the person that hired them did not like mercenary armies very often because they tend to do bad they, they tend to make bad decisions um since they're in it for the money from the very beginning they don't have the same quality in regard to um representing you so for example in in the united states we ran into this a bit when we hired blackwater in iraq uh we had an issue with police when when we took over iraq uh in the second iraqi conflict and we hired a group called blackwater the problem was Blackwater is basically like a mercenary American army. Um, and we found very quickly that the, the Blackwater group was really making some poor decisions, but then like po- posting them online and doing things like that. And so like there was this really famous YouTube video of a guy who would just sit there on the side of the road and he was sniper rifling people's car tires just for fun. And, you know, cars are spinning out and he's just posting it online. And it's like, we're, we're trying to keep Iraq safe and you're sitting there like doing whatever you want, right? But that's the issue with mercenary armies is that they don't feel responsible to you. They feel the, responsible to the fact that they're getting paid. And as long as they're getting paid, they kind of just do whatever they want. And that becomes a problem with Wallenstein is that him and his army start taking spoils of war they start becoming very difficult to deal with and so eventually ferdinand just says that's it i'm gonna fire him and then the swedish phase shows up and he's like okay i need you back so he hires wallenstein again because france and sweden are both getting involved and starting to push down from the protestant north and so what ends up happening is wallenstein is hired again he stops the Swedish and then Ferdinand assassinates him because he's afraid again that his princes are going to revolt probably because of Wallenstein. So it, this, it ends up becoming a really messy conflict, the 30 years war. And, and I'll do the, the French phase of the war um, tomorrow for you guys or Wednesday. But this war, and what I, what I should say is in the AP exam, I would highly doubt that they're ever going to ask you a question in regards to battles or anything like that in regards to war. What they would ask is cause and effect. So what is causing the war? What is the effect of the war? So for you guys, what you want to know is the underlying conflict. So the characteristics of the 30 years war is the most important slide that we wrote down earlier. And eventually when we get to the slide on the peace of Westphalia, which is the effect of like what happens because of the peace of the war. Okay, so those are going to be the things that are the most important. I'm never going to ask you on a test. uh, Tell me what happened in the Swedish phase of the Thirty Years War. I wouldn't ask that question. It's not going to be something that's going to ever be asked of you. Um, It's really more cause and effect. Why is it black? (laughs) Yes. Um, Now, I'm going to stop there because I want to get the other stuff the French phase of the war and that stuff for you uh, tomorrow. So 
just to sum up really quick, remember that for a lot of these religious conflicts, the underlying factor is religion. But that is generally not what the war will continue on as as you go. Once you get into the actual fighting, it now becomes a power struggle. So you can have an underlying factor that ends up not becoming the end factor or the the way that the entire war is fought. And this is a good example. I would say most of the religious wars have the same characteristic where it's it starts with a religious pretext, but it doesn't necessarily remain as pretext or part of the war throughout. It it will morph into more of a power struggle between families. Um, And that's what you find really at the end in the French phase of the war once the Bourbons get involved. Um, and then it, it really just becomes that kind of clashing of the two major families in Europe. So we will get there on Wednesday. So with the, the Swedish phase, one component that you have is that the French are really just funding the Swedes. And this is where the war really switches from that idea that it's very religious pretext to now it's a war of power and control and you, this is kind of evidenced through the way that France deals with Sweden, because the person in charge of France at the time, while Louis XIII is technically in charge and is a king, is a guy named Cardinal Richelieu. Um, and Richelieu is the, he's kind of, he's the foreign minister of France. And what he's doing is he's actually kind of orchestrating this war by funding the Swedes, but not really fighting yet. Um, and the goal is to kind of reduce the power of the Holy Roman Empire and remember that the French are Bourbon. And so now it becomes this competition between the Habsburgs and the Bourbons. And they're somewhat vying for power in Europe. And by the time you get to the French phase of the war, Sweden and France switch sides. So rather than Sweden being the one who's pushing the, the fight, now France is going to push the fight and Swe- the Swedes are going to kind of back them. Now, this particular phase is incredibly Uh, more devastating from a human cost. And if I were writing things down, I would make sure to write down that 8 million die in the war. It causes significant inflation and trade is crippled in Europe. Now, all of those things are important because going forward, trade is overseas trade is going to become even more important. Um, the, The other thing that you find is that because you have that massive inflation in Central Europe, other places throughout Europe are going to become dominant features rather than kind of secondary to, to the power of, of Europe. So if you looked at a, a map of Europe or if this slide was a map of Europe, again, I keep kind of showing you this as we go. The, the money starts in the south. And as you go forward in European history, that money starts kind of going this way, west, northwest, and north. And by the time you get to... Uh, the Thirty Years' War, the money kind of was centralized at one point, and that then starts just continuing on. So by the time you get to the end of it, in about 1700, you really have a consolidation of wealth on the Atlantic region of Europe. Um, And that's kind of the process of that. Uh, Now, like I said, you do need to have that 8 million died, causes mass inflation, and trade is crippled in Europe. Uh, This last one obviously is going to lead towards further expansion into the new world and looking for new sources of income outside of Europe, which will probably also lead to other versions of rivalries 
which will later turn into wars and, and smaller wars, honestly, than the ones that are fought here with the Thirty Years' War. Because this particular war, um, specifically the French phase, feels a lot like an early version of a world war. It's kind of a world war without the colonies. So eventually they're going to get the colonies. But ironically, the Thirty Years' War kind of sets up the, the framework for, hey, maybe we should go get more stuff from other places, which is technically colonies. And as those colonies grow, eventually get to the 20th century. And, you know, after that second industrial revolution and that even stronger imperialism phase, the colonies are just going to support the World Wars one and two um, in a variety of fashions. World War One is really a global war because of colonies. Um, so at the end of the war, when the war is over, the, the thing that is most important and the thing that you must remember most in AP classes is cause and effect. So the cause of the war is very strong with that religious pretext, but also starts to kind of morph into power struggle. When the war is over and the things that I would write down on this slide as far as political provisions, make sure to have this one. The Dutch Netherlands become officially independent of Spain. That is incredibly important. That was a significant issue for Philip II. It was also an issue for Charles V. Charles V at one point had controlled Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, including the Netherlands. Uh, when Philip II took over, he eventually will lose the Holy Roman Empire but keep the Spanish Netherlands, uh, and that will go away with the Peace of Westphalia. You also see Sweden gaining territory. So even though Sweden will eventually lose territory later uh, with the Great Northern War, they will gain toward territory with the Thirty Years' War. Um, as far as the other one that I would write down is the one right underneath that, and that's that Switzerland becomes totally independent of the Holy Roman Emperor. So those three things, I think, are the most important. And looking at them, none of them are religiously based, really, right? The Netherlands are free. Switzerland is free. Sweden gains territory. I'm going to show you the one significant shift from a religious basis but what we find very quickly is that the results, the effects of the Thirty Years' War are probably more political than they are religious. Yes, there is a religious effect, but it's relatively small in the scope of history. And really, it's just a continuation of the Peace of Augsburg in including one more group. So what was the Peace of Augsburg? What did that say for the Holy Roman Empire? Lutherans are a legitimate religion. If you had a Lutheran prince, you were good to go right? Now what the Peace of Westphalia does is it adds Calvinists to that list. And so it makes it so if you're Calvinist, Lutheran, or Catholic, those are the legitimate religions. And as long as your prince were that, you were good to go. Otherwise, uh, this is not significantly a religious effect, right? You have one small change it doesn't significantly change what the word tolerance means for that period, right? Because tolerance just means that you can live in a region that you agree with. But that doesn't mean that you get to live wherever you want and believe whatever you want. So the word tolerance is very shallow in that period as far as what it meant for the people that were getting tolerance. So again, I think if we're trying to just make sense of this period, the Thirty Years' War does a couple things for us. One, it sets up what's eventually going to be a really strong absolutist period because 
the religious wars and conflicts and the, the conflicts that are going on in other regions, which we really haven't touched on yet in regards to science and other things, those will result in Europe wanting to feel safe again. And that safety is going to come in the form of a king. Um, eventually, probably tomorrow, I'll have you guys read with me Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, where he argues, and this is during the English Civil War, but he's going to argue that a king is the best form of government because a king can protect people's needs quicker than any other, any other form of government. He actually believed that democracy was a total disaster because democracy was incredibly slow and that it doesn't provide for people's security fast enough. Um, and his best example is the English Civil War. Um, and when we, we look at the English Civil War starting tomorrow, I think you'll start to realize why Thomas Hobbes wrote what he wrote. Um, you know, obviously he's writing from a pretty strong narrative, but we'll, we'll kind of discuss that going forward. So that's the one thing that it sets up. The other thing that I want to just remind you is that it, it is in this kind of context of religious conflict and is one of the last times that you have a significant religious war in Europe. Now, there's still going to be conflicts between religious groups, but not a full-blown 30 years big, you know, big event of a, of a war that's religious-based or at least has that religious pretext. All right. So we'll end it there for now. And then uh, when we come back, it'll be the English Civil War. Uh, once we get through that, then we'll jump into absolutism uh, more specifically. Thank <laughs> you.